Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to be talking about a rather unique condition of the brain. And we've spoken on this program about lots of different funny things that happen inside our heads. For example, we did a piece on um, the the people who don't see faces. And uh, we did a piece a few years ago about sort of poly musicians who can listen to three pieces of music in their head and follow along not missing a note which is to me one of the most amazing abilities i've ever heard Uh, but this week we're going to be talking about ticker tape synesthesia which is a branch of synesthesia in which two sensations merge in your mind for reasons we'll get into uh, in the podcast but the the result of it is that um you see subtitles for everything around you in front of your eyes as you experience the world. And you can't turn it off. We're going to hear more about that condition in a bit. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can tweet us, we're at newstalkscience. We will get to all of those comments in next week's podcast, so do tune in for that. Right, it's time to look back at the week's science news, and joining me in studio is Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU's School of Chemical Sciences and Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from iCRAG. You're both very welcome. Uh, Our first story, Fergus, has to do with the end of the world. Yes, the end of the world is nigh, but no, 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 let's let's not get too uh, too depressed about it. But this is AR6, the synthesis report. So it's the IPCC's sixth report, and it's a synthesis of three previous reports. What it does is it provides a summary of all the work kind of done to date, and it really highlights the irreversible levels of global heating that have occurred. So it's it's almost yet another reminder to humanity to act and a reminder of what we should be doing is we should be halving our emissions by 2030 compared to 2010 levels. However, uh, even just last year, our emissions are still rising. So Antonio, Antonio Gutierrez um, has, has said that this particular document is like a survival guide for humanity. So if we want it to get ourselves out of this mess and survive, inside in this report um, are the things that we need to do. A lot of those things we know about already, so we need to phase out coal like imminently and immediately. Um, we need to plant more trees, but even if we planted all of the trees, that's still not going to be enough. So we need to be looking into some new and emerging technologies like carbon capture and storage, where you're taking carbon out of the air and you're storing it geologically underground. We also need to look at things like what we eat, um, sustainable forms of agricultural production, um, and and it really it's 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 um it's almost like it's a reminder to us that you know the time is not even now the time was yesterday really yeah. for stuff like this. So we we covered this for many many years. It seems now that they were all but admitting it. I watched the the and the press conference live. They were all basically saying that one point five is is imminent and that that we we can't looks like turn away from one point five and that it will happen early in the next decade. That is very very soon. And one point five means seventy yeah, percent to ninety percent of coral reefs will be gone forever and not return. If we get to two percent, that's ninety nine percent of all coral reefs. That's just one example of uh, 25% of all marine life uh, depends on on these sparse enough coral reefs. So right now, it is a time of extreme crisis and it's hard for us here, particularly in Ireland, to really fully realise it. But um, we have individual actions 
systemic change is hugely needed. So if you're listening to this program and you have any influence when it comes to a large organization or policy uh, strategy within that, that company, it, it is up to you to be an advocate for change. And it is up to you to put sustainability over everything else because the world is counting on you. I feel a sense of helplessness and frustration because there's only so much I can do. And I know that for sure because I don't have that much of influence. I do have this microphone though. And I'm hoping that everybody in 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 the the country who has some level of influence can say let's start to make this a situation like Greta Thunberg says where we're acting like our house is on fire because it is and so if you have agency now is the time to act because what's coming up is it's it's very very real and it's very very scary absolutely and as it says in this report even at the level of the individual, the actions must be deep, they must be rapid and they must be sustained. So even if we feel like we're losing hope, we have to keep on going with this stuff because the difference between 1.5 and 2 um, and two and 2.5, that's not a linear difference. Yeah. So 2.5 is so much worse than 2 and 2 is so much worse than 1.5 that really it's um, all of our actions need to be they need to be deep, they need to be rapid, and they need to be sustained, and we just need to keep on doing them. And, and it's easy to just feel despair, but um, like we've got to do better uh, when it comes to this. And it's easy to look at the wind and say it's, it's their fault, or it's America's fault, or it's China's fault. We need to do what we can here as well. Our second story, Susan, has to do with elephant seals and extreme polygamy. Yes. I, I, I placed that story second for a particular reason. <laughs> oh, let's laugh and move on um, <laughs> to try and not get depressed, like you said. But do you know much about elephant seals? Uh, they're, uh, they're big and they're horny. They're really big. They're really, really big. They are huge. The, uh, the largest males can get as long as a shipping container. So nearly oh, over... Oh, whoa. I didn't know yeah, they're that big. Six metres long. They're really big. Um, and they also weigh up to 4,000 kilograms. So these things are they're massive, right? And one of the reasons for this enormous size is exactly as you said, they um, male elephant seals take part in epic beach battles with each other in order to become the dominant male. And at this, to- at this point, then, they gain the interesting title of beach master. And uh, they are then able to mate with uh, all the females that they that they want, right? But only 4% of all males manage to pull this off. Now, wow. do the maths there now, okay? So this means that ele- male elephant seals take multiple partners, exactly as you said, up to 100, in fact, per male. So they're busy. They make a lot of babies and... Um, <laughs> They talk, talk, they don't laugh. Come on, it's animals. <laughs> Jesus, like, get, get it together. We're talking, I'm very like, sorry. No, way, I just, I was, way worse. I was just thinking they topics. must be very tired. But they do get uh, a bit of help by assistant beach masters. If, uh, if like things, fluffers. Uh, just, I, I'm not sure that's their title. But if the beaches are very, very, very long, beach masters do tend to bring in assistant beach masters to help them along. Um, help them in which way? Help them just to, to, to maybe, you know, just they, look after a few of the Okay, so they, so, they, so they allow yeah, uh, mating just, of a yeah, sub sub yeah. beach master. Yeah, but it's it's really on their terms, you know, it's not it's sort of, it's, it's very much just to help and and um, I heard I read the term harem uh, in the piece. Is, is, is that a, med- is that a, is that a, a, a biological, a zoological term? That was is not that in the paper. Oh, I said so it, it Yeah, it was not. Okay. But um, this really competitive environment for the males makes them 
basically they have to gain weight really quickly. What this this is why they get really big because they get they have a strength advantage. If you're only going to be one of four percent, you have to be really big. But then also, um, it keeps them out of the water. So they feed. In order to feed, they have to go into the water. And if you can be so large that you don't have to eat for several weeks and if even up to months at a time, then they they then you're able to you sort of look after your kingdom so to speak um, and this all ties into work that was published this week um, in the Royal Society Open Science Journal they studied 14,000 southern elephant seals and they found that basically what happens is male and female juveniles um, have the same survival rate so they you know 80% of them 85% of them survive um, through uh, up to a certain, let's say up to about the age of 8 years but once you get to 8 years which is their sexually mature age the, the females they keep doing well but the males then start to die oh, off yeah. so you get down to about 50% survival rate and this largely is because the males that don't make it into this coveted position end up dying in the water with where their predators are so they don't have a haven they, they can come out once a, once a year to try and battle to try and take over right, the beach but masters. they've got to stay in the but water because yeah, otherwise be, the beach mass is going to Indeed so it's quite a sad story and an interesting thing to study but um, yeah I don't know yeah, there, there's not a lot of them left after sexual maturity, but the few that are there, I guess they're pretty they're having, content. having an all right time. Uh, our third story has to do with bog bodies, Fergus. Yeah, this is a, this is a really interesting and uh, really wide ranging study because it looked at uh, over one thousand over one thousand remains of bog bodies from all over northern Europe, and essentially what it was trying to do was to find out uh, more about bog bodies, but but crucially tried to find out uh, the cause of death in many cases. So um, as we know, bog bodies, they're really well preserved in bogs because of the acid environment. It's really low oxygen. It's low light. Um, and it can really preserve the remains. So a bog mummy is where the skin and the hair has been well preserved. And a bog skeleton is where more of the bones are left. And they look like they've been in tanning, tanning world. Exactly. It's, it's, it, they've got amazing <laughs> tans on them, their bog bodies. Why is that? That is due to tannins in the water, so it's the same process as um, as creating leather. Oh, wow, so really? essentially, uh, when you're making leather, you are applying tannins to to cowhide, I think, and that that gives it its dark colour, but crucially makes it really hardy um, and able to survive over a long period of time. It's the exact same process in bogs. Uh, what they found out here is that there was, I guess, a degree of violence, I suppose, to many of the deaths, but. Not all bog bodies are in there because they were killed or sacrificed. Um, in the cases where they were killed or sacrificed, some of the some of the endings are pretty gruesome. So, say for instance, Tulland Man, which was found in Denmark, he was hung. Poor Snows Man, also found in Denmark, uh, he still had bone arrowheads lodged in his skull and in his sternum. And no mystery um, there. No mystery there, especially in the cases of overkillings, where the where where the poor uh, uh, unfortunate person was killed by several means. Um, oh. But uh, there are there are other areas where the cause of death um, was perhaps accidental or due to disease or they just don't know why. Is, is this um, a Danish thing? It is. There there are a lot of bog bodies <laughs> in Denmark. There are also um, a lot of bog bodies in Ireland. Actually, if you would like to see one of these, uh, you can go to the National Museum of Archaeology on Kildare Street. They have two um, really well-preserved um, remains in there and it's absolutely well worth a visit. Yeah. And um, there's something funny that happens in the acid of the bog as well, isn't it? The bones kind of disappear, so they essentially turn into a handbag. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah, so they crumple in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Um, Our final story uh, has to do with satellites in the sky. Satellites. I I was in France not so long ago, Susan, and myself and my uh, two kids and my wife were walking along 
uh, the beach and we looked up and we saw a train of lights in the sky. Mm-hmm. And I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't a clue what it was. It looked really strange and I was very unsure as to what I was seeing because I, I, I didn't realise these guys... They, they start off lower and they go higher. Mm-hmm. And it was just a really bright train of, of lights in the sky. And I thought it might have been aliens. I'm, I'm being honest here. I actually did. I was like, what the hell is that? Can't it be this? And, and then we came home and we uh, Googled it. And my family took the piss out of me for the week. <laughs> anyway. So what you might have seen is a constellation of um, low Earth orbit uh, satellites. So um, we, we often think about light in the sky. Um, when, we, when we're trying to look at stars, when we're in stargazing, we know that we get a lot of light pollution, right? Uh, street lights, buildings, cars, roads, etc. But these, um, these satellites that are up in, up in the sky, these low Earth orbit satellites, are increasing, um, prob- they're increasingly problematic for brightening up the sky at night, exactly as you said. So companies such as Starlink, I don't know if you know, perhaps as you said, you, you yeah. haven't, but um, there are so many of these satellites up there. Starlink, which is Elon Musk's um, company, have so far launched 3,055 satellites and they're aiming to put 12,000 of these up into the sky by 2026. So they, they're very active, as we know, these, so these small satellites... For example, they were activated in Ukraine in February 2022 to replace internet services after the, the war started. But they're... This week, the, there was a letter from in Nature, which was from astronomers who have said that these satellites are going to cause problems with interference with telescopes, and it's you know they're they're concerned that we're not going to be able to see you know uh, things uh, from a distance uh, with all the light pollution from these satellites. Yeah. And there's no regulation, and which they is call crazy. This, there's no regulation. You just throw something in the sky. It's no called big you. light, as a, uh, relative to like big oil and, and etc. Big pharma, you know. So they have a real problem. But their main problem is the, is the fact that it's it, no one's really looking at this as a problem and so they want they wrote this letter to say look we, we need to think about this before we start sending up ten, tens of thousands of these things up into the sky yeah, I, I think um, I think they're right I, I would co-sign if I'd been asked <laughs> uh, love to hear your thoughts on that you can email us science at newstalk.com or whatsapp us 087-1400-106 Dr. Susan Keller from DCU and from iCrag Dr. Fervis McAuliffe thanks very much <laughs> Now, as we said at the top of the program, people experience the world in many different ways. And some of those ways we've covered on the program uh, can be fascinating. And we've touched on synesthesia before, but never ticker tape synesthesia. Uh, Here to tell me a little bit about the work that he's doing studying the phenomenon is Professor Lauren Cohen. He's a professor of neurology at the Salpêtrière Hospital in Paris. Uh, Welcome to the program, Laurent. Before we start... um, I suppose we, we need to explain to people what synesthesia is. Well, synesthesia is a, a variance of normal perception. You know, everybody perceives the world more or less in the same way. But in synesthetes, uh, the perception is a bit bizarre. For instance, the most uh, studied type of synesthesia is probably what is called a letter color synesthesia. Where if you're not synesthete, when you are looking at a, a, a printed letter in black on a white sheet of paper, you see it black, of course. But if you have a letter color synesthesia, you see this letter with a specific color. For instance, A are blue, Bs are red, and so on and so forth. That's an example of synesthesia. You see things in a particular way. You have atypical links between uh, letters 
and colors, for instance, in, in this case. And there are lots of different flavors of this particular condition. Uh, what is the underlying neurology of it? Like what's happening in the brain that people are seeing what what should be black and white um, letters as colored or tasting sounds in their mouth, for example? Uh, well, it's very unclear. What seems to be the case is there are connections between domains, between uh, mental domains, between senses, which is abnormally strong, let's say. If you think of a letter, you can imagine it with a, a given color. But if you have a synesthesia, you have a forced activation of a color when you see a letter. So there's some sort of overconnection between fields which normally are more or less separated. Is that a bad thing necessarily? Do we see that as no, a pathology? No, it's not. It's not. It's not a disease. And generally, it's not a, a nuisance at all. Uh, most synesthetes uh, don't even know they are not like everybody. Mm. It, it's very frequent that uh, synesthetes discover very late that everybody is not like them, because precisely because it's in no way a handicap or an impediment, whatever. This is right. Uh, whenever we talk about synesthesia on the program over my 15 years of, of radio broadcasting, we always get people who realize at the very second we talk about yeah. it that, wait a second, that sounds like me. So if you yeah. experience color um, while you're um, while you're eating or if you're tasting sounds, if if that sounds familiar to you, you might have synesthesia because it, this is quite common in the population. Right. We think, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who are neurotypical like myself think that, you know, everybody's like me, but actually there's a lot of synesthesia in the population. Yeah, maybe you are not neurotypical. Maybe you have a synesthesia and you don't know it because yeah. you believe everybody is like you. But uh, the, the, the statistics are not uh, very, uh, very clear, but it's in the order of a few percent of the population. But that's a lot. I mean, that is a lot of people. Yes, um, yes, yes. That's like two probably. people who listen to this program. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, it's more, it's probably in the same range as uh, many developmental uh, peculiarities like dyslexia or amusia or apraxia, all sorts of developmental, atypical development. It's always more or less in the order of a few percent of the general population. So let's talk about ticker tape synesthesia, because this yeah. is one I hadn't heard of. And it's fascinating to me. So I was thinking when I, I got proposed this idea by the producer, I was thinking this guy's obviously found one interesting use case. But you seem to have found 26 people who have ticker tape synesthesia. So yes. What is it? Actually, well, actually, uh, if you have ticker tape synesthesia, when you are uh, listening to speech, even to your own speech, uh, not only do you hear it, but you also see uh, the words in their printed forms in your mind's eye. Uh, everybody can more or less uh, voluntarily and effortfully imagine a written word. But if you are a synesthete, this imagery, this mental imagery is very vivid and absolutely automatic and requires absolutely no effort. Whenever you, you, you are hearing somebody uh, talking, you see the words. You see the words. That's the, the basic phenomenon. So uh, it's essentially like having subtitles all the time from, from yes. when you... So and actually, the, the, I, I think the, the, the term subtitle synesthesia would be 
uh, more appropriate because nobody knows what what is a ticker tape anymore. I think. Right. Yeah. The ticker tape is the scrolling line at the bottom of the screen in in, in news, isn't it? Usually American news. It doesn't exist really in Ireland. Um, so the people who have this condition, they see a sort of the writing, the words of what they're talking about. Do they see it in in the middle of their eye? Is it? Does it feel like it's in front of their eyes or? Well, how does it feel? It depends. We try to know that we interrogated them. Uh, it's it's rather variable across subjects. Some of them can tell you, well, it's always at the bottom of my visual field or always close to the mouth of the person who is speaking, something like that. But in some other people, it's very difficult. They know it's somewhere in, in their mental space, but it's not always easy to locate, uh, so to speak, in a precise place in the external world. And and when they hear words, would they, if they heard French words, would it would they come with accent aigu and that sort of thing if they didn't if they didn't speak French or is it always in their own language? No, it can. Be, what is critical to to trigger the the phenomenon is that they can recover what is called phonology. For instance, if you you're listening to the word hat, for instance, your brain extracts from the sound which enters your ears extracts three phonemes: the phoneme h the phoneme A and the phoneme T, which are the sounds of language. And as soon as you are able, if you are a synesthete, as soon as you are able to extract well-defined phonemes, then you can perceive written letters. For instance, uh, the synesthetes generally can perceive some written letters when they are listening to a foreign language in uh, in as much as they can identify the, the speech sounds. Right, uh, it's an F, it's an A, and so on and so forth. Okay, so so if they were listening to um, to Arabic um, being spoken, for example, well, if they are not familiar with Arabic, they might, for instance, when they hear a clear A, maybe they can perceive a, a written letter A. Right, uh, okay. but for many sounds which have no clear equivalent in a written form in in, in English or in French, they would not perceive anything probably. What about like if something if if there's a car crash outside, would they hear the word crash? Well, in some cases, I would say yes. It depends. Basically, if the the sound has an onomatopoeia, which is the, its equivalent, then you can they see it in the, in the written form. For instance, there was a gentleman who um, generally in the morning, early in the morning, heard a bird singing in his garden. Always the same bird always the same song. And after a few days, he transcribed mentally this uh, this song into an onomatopoeia, like bee, 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 boo, something like that. And starting from this day, whenever he heard this bird, he could see the written form of the onomatopoeia, B-I, B-I, and so on and so forth. Wow. So once you have crossed the boundary from noise to the realm of speech sounds, then it triggers for uh, synesthesia. That sounds cute, but also like it could also be very frustrating. Like the, the 26 people that you spoke to who, who experienced this subtitle synesthesia, where they, they see the words of the sounds that they're hearing. Did they find this really frustrating to, to experience? No, not at all. 
Not at all. It's just like what you said, a substantial proportion of them did not even know that not everybody was like them. Hmm. And it's not really a, a problem. A little bit, if we, if we ask them, they say that when they are trying to read in a very noisy uh, environment, when they are surrounded by many people, then it can be a bit disturbing because the, the synesthetic uh, uh, letters tend, tend to intrude in, the, in, the, in their vision of their book, for instance. Huh. But apart from that, it's not really a problem. So, like, how does one word transition to another? As I, as I say these words, I'm imagining them, as you say, sort of um, like ticker tape makes you think that they slide across the yeah. bottom of the vision, but th- that isn't what necessarily happens, is it? How, how does one word replace another? Yes, well, the, we ask them, and again, there's some, some variability. The, the most uh, common pattern is probably that one word replace, uh, replaces the, the, the previous one at the same place, right. so to speak, rather than really a ribbon or ticker tape. And do these people have extra... Extra power. Pro- proficiency in, in anything to do with, with letters or reading. I remember I interviewed David um, Tamet, a, a, a synesthete and savant who was able to mix colours together in his mind uh, that he associated with numbers and the result was the answer of multiplying those numbers together. So he could take, um, he would say, you know, 6,945,422,104 multiplied by 16 and he'd know what those two colours were and he could blend those colours in his mind and come out with the answer, which is an extraordinary thing to be able to do. but I don't think that is common. <laughs> so I'm wondering, what about these guys? Can they are they particularly proficient at reading, writing? Are they very literate? Well, uh, we we try to identify uh, some uh, some tasks in which they would be better. They would perform better than non-synesthetes. And actually, it, it's it's working in very simple tasks, such as, for instance, uh, spelling backward. If you tell them a word uh, and you ask them to spell the word backward like uh, house, you should say E-S-U-O-H, uh, something like that, uh, they are faster and more accurate than non-synesthetes. Hmm. It's the same for tasks such as uh, saying the number of letters in a word. If I, if I tell you uh, a campaign, how many letters are there in campaign? It's not that easy. For them, it's easier than for non-synesthetes. Right. And indeed, they claim that it's easier just because they have the word under their uh, their mind's eye, so to speak. They can just read it. Yeah. <laughs> so there are small advantages, I would say, but nothing dramatic. So good at spelling bees, but after the age of, say, 11, this this condition that they have is completely useless, it seems. Um, what about uh, your research? Why are you interested? I mean, apart from the fact that they're fascinated, this is just amazing that people live their lives like this. But why are you interested from a research point of view in synesthetes? Well, my, my primary uh, interest came from the fact that I'm mostly studying reading, the brain mechanisms of reading. That is basically how you translate uh, written letters into sound and meaning in mm. your brain. And uh, ticker tape synesthesia, in a sense, is um, exactly a, a reading appended or working upside down. Uh, because in ticker tape synesthesia, it's the opposite. That is, you, you, you perceive sounds and you automatically translate them into, uh, into letters. So we, we, we assume that 
we had the, this idea that in ticker tapers, um, we should see the reading, the, the reading system in the brain work in a special way. And actually, that's what we are currently studying because uh, we are scanning those participants uh, using uh, MRI, functional MRI. You know what MRI is. It's a device to take images of your brain, for instance. And you can use this, uh, this technique to, uh, to measure what as are the regions of the brain whose activation increases or decreases while you are doing something. Hmm. So uh, we, we scanned the synesthetes and non-synesthetes uh, subjects while they were experiencing synesthesia or during control conditions with no synesthesia. And indeed, we see that in synesthetes, there are a set of brain regions whose activity is higher, for instance, when they are listening to speech, typically. Uh, those regions activate stronger than in non-synesthetes. And those regions, which overactivate in, in uh, synesthetes, overlap largely with the reading system. Hmm. That is the set of regions which activate during reading. Which, which I suppose makes sense, uh, but it's still, yes. still fascinating nonetheless. It's really, really interesting. Uh, Professor Laurent Cohen uh, is from the Salpetriere Hospital in Paris. Thanks so much for joining us, Laurent. You're welcome. Thank you very much. I'd love to know what you made of that. And uh, if you experience any sort of synesthesia, ticker tape or otherwise, do tell us a story. We'll get into all, all of those stories in the podcast. You can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can WhatsApp us, 87 106 Now, deep in the bowels of University College Cork lies a mysterious facility run by Professor Seamus Davis. He's a professor of quantum physics there. It's called an ultra-low vibration laboratory, and it allows us to visualise the very building blocks of atoms themselves. Seamus joins me now to tell me more. Seamus, you're very welcome to the programme. Your interest in this field started off in quite a funny way, didn't it? Because you started off not really believing in all of this quantum stuff. Well... I learned about quantum mechanics when I was a student at UCC um, in the na- early 1980s. And I, you know, I passed my exams. Uh, I, I knew how to work the machinery, but it was difficult to believe some of the things they were telling us. And then I went to Berkeley for graduate school. I graduated in 1989 with a PhD. And most of that time I spent working on macroscopic quantum mechanics and just through practical experience of seeing amazing things happen in the lab every day, I came to believe completely that quantum mechanics is correct. What is macro quantum mechanics? Okay, so it it used to be, and it still is usually taught in schools throughout the world, that quantum mechanics is the theory of extremely tiny objects like electrons and atoms and protons and particles, and that we will never detect quantum mechanics in the macroscopic world because it's hidden from us at the atomic scale. That's complete fake news. That's just nonsense. (laughs) Um, There's no rule of physics that prevents quantum mechanics from occurring in the macroscopic world. And for example, a quantum computer is a perfect example of a macroscopic quantum device. So um, when we're talking about quantum anything, because that word can sometimes be thrown around by uh, TV programs and um, and products alike. When yeah. we're talking about quantum, what exactly are we talking about? So there, there are many features to quantum mechanics, but the one upon which 
quantum technology is being built at the moment, well, there are two. The first one is superposition. If you have an object which has two states, let's say a coin, like a euro, our brains are designed to believe that that object can either be in one state or the other. That's probably due to evolution. I'm not quite sure why, but it's wrong. Um, any object which has two quantum mechanical states can be in a mixture of both states. And, you know, Schrodinger brought that to our attention by the example or, or the cartoon of a cat. He said, you could have a cat that's both dead and alive at the same time. So we know from a century of research, that fact is true. That's called quantum superposition. And then the second thing upon which um, quantum technology is being built is quantum entanglement, which is that if you have, let's say, two cats and you form a, a combined state of the two of them and you arrange it so that if one of them is alive, the other is dead, then you send one cat to Belfast and you send the other cat to Cork. As soon as you check the one in Belfast and find that's, that it's alive, you will have caused the one in Cork to be dead. That's entanglement. And that's also John Bell, Ireland's great physicist, proved that this is true. And, and this is something that really confounds our understanding of what, the way the world works. Isn't that right? Because this idea that you can observe the state of something in one place and it will um, predict the state of something in a in a completely different place is yeah. is very difficult for us to understand because there's no medium for which that information to pass through from one place to another. That's not possible. If if you put the question like that, yes, it is. No no physicist that I know knows the predictive explanation for how this occurs. Now it's important to understand. They know the mathematics to describe how it occurs. John Bell provided that to us, and it's correct. You can build computers based on that mathematics, and they perform correctly. So when we say we don't understand, we're actually talking about some issue of human psychology rather than an ability to control nature. Right. But, but um, for example, if we put one of these cats on the moon, and yep. we had one here on Earth, yep. and we looked at Earth, instantly we would imagine the cat on the moon has, has died? These experiments have been done with two entangled particles, photons or atoms, etc., etc. Now, for many decades, last year's Nobel Prizes were given for the first generation of people who carry out the experiment that you just described and prove that that's what happens. And um, at the time, last time we spoke about this, I was trying to get my head around uh, as to whether or not it could happen faster than the speed of light. Because if we, if we imagine it's happening faster, <laughs> then, then that would really change our understanding of things that can travel faster than the speed of light. But of course, we won't be able to know we won't be able to get the message back faster than the speed of light. Yes, so it's sort of, it's moot, right? <laughs> so, so here's a statement which is true. This statement has been checked many times. So you entangle two particles, two photons, let's say, and you send them off in the fiber optic network and send one of them 500 kilometers in one direction and the other one 500 kilometers in the other direction. And then you use an atomic clock to fix the moment where you measure the um, polarization of the two photons. So the time interval between the measurement is such that, you know, information would have had to pass maybe 10,000 or 50,000 times the speed of light. But nevertheless, when you do the experiment, if you detect one right polarized, the other one is always left polarized. So this is a fact of nature. If, if you're asking me how did the information get transmitted, I'm not sure that any information did get transmitted because 
What's maintained is a correlation between two facts, which are measured instantly. This, as you say, these two ideas are the fundamental um, ideas upon which quantum technology and quantum computers are are being built. Can you tell yes. me a little bit about your ultra-low vibration laboratory? What are you doing in there? And, and, and what do you need an ultra-low vibration laboratory for? Okay. So, so you know, our, our present uh, semiconductor-based technology is based on very special materials. For example, silicon, gallium arsenide, and so on. And those materials for use in semiconducting information technology were developed in the 1970s and 1980s, you know, by a previous generation of scientists like me. So what I work on is developing new materials for quantum technology, the materials upon which the fab will be carried out to make the new quantum devices of the future. Now, to those materials are very, very difficult to understand for a physicist. And so the thing that we introduce to that field is a new type of quantum microscope where you can get a new material, which is completely mysterious. You put it into this microscope, you cool down near absolute zero, and then you can visualize all the quantum mechanical states of the electrons as they move around inside the material. And from that information, you can diagnose how does it work? Why does it have the properties it has? And will it do the job I need? And they're called quantum microscopes. For those quantum microscopes to work, we need an ultra-low temperature, ultra-low vibration laboratory because they're tremendously sensitive uh, to vibrational and ac acoustic noise. Yeah, when we think of um, metals on a macro level, uh, you know, a metal might seem perfect and pristine and shiny, but when you're talking about, you know, uh, microscopic and, and sort of, um, subatomic levels, presumably, even by observing or trying to get information from these these materials, you might damage or um, misrepresent the information you're getting back from. That, that, that must surely be some sort of a task. Well, of, yes, it's always possible to make mistakes in scientific research, but it's a better plan not to do that. And that's what <laughs> we attempt to do. Take me through it then. So when you have yeah. a new material that presumably yeah. has been synthesized by um, a, a lab and they want to say, look, could this work to allow us to, to use in a new type of chip, for example? Correct. That happens all the time. So right. our, our colleagues who synthesize new quantum materials will say, in order to understand how this works, we need to visualize the electronic structure at the atomic scale. Can you put this sample in your microscope? And, you know, tell us what are the properties of all the electrons that are moving around inside the material. When you uh, say the properties of, of, of electrons, what sort yeah. of, I mean, I know we're getting really into the weeds here, <laughs> but what I, I thought an electron was something very, very simple. I didn't realize it had a huge amount of properties other than ah, just which it's, way it's spinning. So, no, that's a brilliant question. So, you know, in gold or silicon or something, they're just individual particles. They're moving around like bullets. They have no properties. But in modern quantum materials, they're all cooperating with each other. So they're not like bullets. They're like some quantum mechanical rugby team where you have to figure out how each particle is communicating and working with every other particle to make the system work. And what we've discovered, one way to do that is by visualizing it directly at the atomic scale. So you, you get like pictures or data? Okay, now we have to delve into quantum mechanics. So in the classical world, in your, in, in your studio there where I can see you, um, there's only one set of phenomena surrounding you, okay? But in the quantum mechanical world, um, an infinite number of different phenomena can all occur at the same location, 
you know, in an atom, there are all different energy levels, but they're at the same place in space. So when you visualize the electronic structure of a material, if you choose a particular energy of the electrons, you get one image. It looks like a cloud of electrons moving through the crystal. But without changing the place where you're looking, if you go to a different energy, you'll get a completely different picture. So one thing we introduced is movies of the images of electronic structure where time is energy. So as we run through the movie, we see all the different energy states that the electrons can have in a material. This was really revolutionary. It was, when I first introduced this scheme, it was so unexpected that it was very difficult to publish the first papers because people had never seen anything like this before. So where are we with this sort of technology then? Because there, there are people talking about quantum computers and, um, and I know many of the major tech players are developing their own technologies. Where are we, we with that? Because it, it feels like we're at, at a bit of a superposition with the technology. Yeah. We, we have quantum computers, but we don't. Is that right? There are quantum computers now, superconducting quantum computers. You could buy one. You could have it at home. They cost tens of millions of euros, of course, and you'd have to build an extension on your house because they're very big. Um, but they do work very well. Many scientific breakthroughs have been made in the last three to five years by using quantum computers. So they work fine. Um, but there's a race to find the correct platform, which is commercializable. So if you think of classical computers, you can make a classical computer with mechanical switches or with electrical valves or with transistors or with photons. Well, we're in the same situation now with respect to quantum computers. There's many different ways you could make a quantum computer, and we, we don't know which one is commercializable yet. So there are race, there's a big race going on all over the world to identify the correct platform. But superconducting quantum computers are ahead of the race at the moment. Right. And, and the, these superconducting quantum computers, it's quite a mouthful and quite a, quite a headful too. Um, what is the what is the application of this um, day to day? Obviously, a big right. uh, data set um, understanding, taking in things like, for example, the, uh, the 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 all of the data from the sky that um, the teles the radio telescope down in Burr is, uh, it takes in and try and analyze all that. I can understand that maybe being an application, but um, at the risk of sounding like that guy from IBM fifty years ago. Is there a need for maybe more than a handful of supercomputers in the future? Suppose you could buy a laptop uh, which worked a thousand times faster than your present laptop. And that's just the speed. Because it was a quantum computer, it actually solved problems, let's say, two billion times faster than your laptop. And suppose the price was the same. Would you buy it? Not really. Why not? I'm not? Because I'm not fast enough. I mean, I really, it's like the argument for 6G. Uh, uh, you know, for most people, we can only yeah. take in, we can only take in, you know, maybe 4K. Beyond that, we don't need an AK TV. We, you know, okay. when it comes to day-to-day -day applications, I don't need, I, I don't need a super, supercomputer. I, mean, I probably never will. No, you, you will. That's where, that's like this guy in IBM. So, right, for okay. example, suppose you wanted to predict what are the flows of investment going to be in Ireland? due to changes of the interest rates all over the world, which are going on now. And you wanted to predict them accurately so that you could bet your savings and become a billionaire. Well, you can't do that now. There are no computers powerful enough to predict all the streams of flow of finance and investment over the whole world, because that, in, that involves billions of actors and their 
What they do depends on what everybody else is doing. However, a sufficiently powerful quantum computer could predict things like that. So you could have investment software on your superconducting laptop, uh, which would allow you to make predictive decisions about the economy and finance. That's just one example of a problem which is impossible to solve now, but is conceivably solvable with quantum computers. Where is Ireland in this race of superconducting, quantum computing, 3D materials, uh, and so on, in the race for uh, quantum supremacy? Where do we stand research-wise? Um, so on the positive side, many of the world leading corporations in quantum technology and quantum computing have major facilities in Ireland. <laughs> Google is the leader. Um, you know, Intel is another leader. IBM is another leader. So there is a tremendous presence in Ireland of the corporate leaders um, of quantum technology. And Science Foundation Ireland and the Irish government are... Uh, aggressively pursuing an agenda to ramp up um, research and training in quantum mechanics, quantum engineering, quantum technology, quantum software, et cetera, et cetera, to meet um, the needs that everyone anticipates will be here, you know, five, 10, 20 years from now. So in the sense of opportunity, we're in a very good point of opportunity. In the sense of actually inventing new quantum computers, we, we're well behind the leading edge of research um, at that point. Leaders there are in the US and Canada, Germany, Japan, China, um, UK. So we're behind those leaders. So as part of your um, career in this area of research, you were recently awarded the Oliver E. Buckley Condensed Matter Physics Prize. Congratulations, uh, Seamus. What exactly does that mean and what was it for? So the Buckley Prize is the premier prize of the American Physical Society in all of uh, condensed matter physics, all of solid state physics, all of quantum technology, everything. Um, so it, it was humbling, actually, to receive that award. It was wonderful after decades of hard work to receive the acknowledgement for the effort we've put in and the new concepts and instruments that we've introduced. Um, and it's very good for Ireland, too, because it makes it possible for us to bring in additional funding and to recruit top class scientists into programs which have that level of recognition. Finally, Seamus, this week saw the publishing of um, the IPCC's uh, synthesis report in which they said, you know, act like your house is on fire, essentially, because it is, uh, to quote Greta Thunberg. In terms of quantum computing, um, that that's not going to be giving us any um, energy savings soon, is it? I mean, when we think about how we compute at the moment with with these giant data centers. Are, is there hope in the horizon for tackling our computing needs and, and growing our technology without destroying the environment at the same time? Okay, brilliant question. So back up one step from quantum technology and just think about superconductivity. Superconductors are conducting materials which dissipate no energy, not just a small amount or a teeny amount. They've, they're quantum mechanically protected from dissipation. They dissipate no energy. So if you had one of these giant server farms, of which we have many in Ireland, instead of using megawatts to operate, they might use kilowatts because all the circuitry would be superconducting and it wouldn't lose any energy. 
So um, uh, the reason we don't do that is that we don't have room temperature superconductors at yet. And without room temperature superconductivity, you'd have to use a lot of energy to cool down the circuitry. But on the day that we get reliable room temperature superconductivity, we could diminish the energy burden of information technology and storage and also of power generation and transmission tremendously. So we could impact climate issues uh, if we could reach the point of discovering and using room temperature superconductors. And that is a theoretical possibility, but currently not available technology. It's much more than that. If you Google room temperature superconductivity, you'll find out that it's a contemporary area of extremely aggressive and active research with claims and counterclaims of recent discoveries of room temperature superconductivity. There was a claim made when I was in Las Vegas to get the Buckley Prize and so many people wanted to attend the lecture that there were security guards checking who was going in and going out. So <laughs> now room temperature superconductivity is a red hot subject on the frontier of physics research. Well, great to hear it's not the, the fusion of uh, solid matter physics. Um, no, it's not. I wouldn't work on it in that case. <laughs> well, uh, congratulations on the Oliver E. Buckley uh, Prize. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us, Professor Seamus Davis from University All of All right. Washington. Thanks, Jonathan. I thought that was really fascinating and love to hear from you if you have synesthesia, particularly if you just found out, uh, if you just found out that people do not smell words or taste colours or see letters in front of them where they shouldn't be. Um, like to hear your experience of it and uh, and how you realised and when you realised that you had synesthesia. You can email us science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us your story. We're at Newstalk Science. All right. Um, time to catch up on some of your comments from last week's uh, podcast. And uh, we were talking about heating. And uh, there was a story in the news about a data centre very small data centre that was immersed in cooling liquid and that was used to heat the local swimming pool. And one of the fascinating facts from that was that they saved, what was it, 100 grand a year, which just seems like a crazy amount of uh, money to spend on uh, heating a pool. But there you go. We heard from many of you, including Michael, John and Anthony on Twitter, that Amazon data center uh, on the old Jacobs factory site in Tala is actually doing something similar. It is heating uh, Tala IT and the hospital through this excess heat that's coming from the data center. Uh, thanks so much for everyone for explaining that. So that is kind of a cool idea. It's called district heating. And I think, you know, it, it just makes sense that if we're, if we're creating excess heat or excess cooling somewhere, there must be a good use for it somewhere if we can, if we can figure it out. Co-locating those things uh, next to each other is a smart move. And uh, Jill on Twitter uh, very much liked our chat on AI. I expected to hear from solicitors and barristers who... Um, up and down the country were um, listening to the program, I'm sure, and furious that I had reduced their entire profession to replaceable by AI within the next six months. Um, but it seems they agree. And <laughs> we're going to see uh, AI lawyers um, chasing AI ambulances in the near future. Um, that's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks to Marais O'Sullivan and Simon Keane producing this week and Steve Daunt and Hugo Da Silva, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof with a very special guest episode uh, where we're going to uh, host 
Dr. Shane Bergen's new podcast called The Trust Race, uh, in which he sort of examines controversies and trust in science and scientists in a brilliant podcast. So look out for that next Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.